We were made for joy. That's a, that's a word that I think sometimes escapes us in the, in the roundabout stuff we encounter every, every day. We were made for joy. Yes, that is the Lord's intention. And I believe that even as we, even as we walk into uh, the future, even as we walk and walk and reflect on the past, the Lord desires that all of that would be mm, put together for the sake of his name and even our joy. This morning, we're going to spend some time digging into the scripture and discussing what it is that joy is made of. Today is the second week of Advent here at Calvary Chapel Surprise, and so we light the second candle in preparation for the coming of Jesus in his birth. And that, that candle represents for us joy. I'd like to ask you, if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here back and forth this morning. In Luke chapter 1, as you're turning there, a uh, couple things I'd like to bring to your attention. Number one, we do plan to have a live nativity uh, on Christmas Eve available to our community and to our, our church family. Um, as you know, uh, that requires something that you can give us, and that is palm branches. If you have uh, a plan to trim your trees within the next several uh, days or weeks, uh, we encourage you Bring your palm branches here. We need them for our live nativity set piece. If you have neighbors, maybe you'll see somebody trimming trees in your neighborhood this week. You can send them our direction. They can't dump their grass clippings here, but they can get rid of the palm branches here. Um, second thing, just to bring to your attention, we have the blessing tree in our foyer, and um, it is there designed to enable us to bless one another, particularly our church family and those uh, children that are a part of You Matter ministry, uh, Ministries downtown. I encourage you, if you haven't done so, plan to stop by the table and, and be a part of being a blessing to others this season. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we, we read here the story of of uh, the, the beginning or the backstory, if you will, of the Christmas story. And this morning, we're going to start reading in verse 26, but I want to set it up just a little bit. Um, the previous part of this chapter, we have the, the uh, recounting of, of how God met with Zacharias, uh, an angel visited Zacharias, who was married to a woman named Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was um, up there in years, let me say that. And she had been barren her whole life, unable to have children. And the Lord sent an angel to tell Zacharias that uh, his wife was going to become pregnant, even in her old age. And 
Bless his heart, he had a hard time believing that. And, and, uh, and so the, the angel says, well, just to prove it to you, just to prove that God means what he says here, you're not going to be able to talk until the child is born. Wow. That's one way to shut him up, right? Well, uh, the story uh, continues here in verse 26. This is what um, the, is referred to here in the sixth month. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we read, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of a greeting would kind of put me on my heels. Hail, favored one. We don't, we don't uh, typically greet one another that way, do we? We might say, hey, and do the high five thing, but we don't say, hail, favored one. Surely this greeting means that, that the angel is greeting someone of great stature. I know that Mary would not consider herself to be that, a person of great stature. Rather, she sees herself quite in, honestly as a lowly individual. And yet the Lord, uh, the Lord sends his angel Gabriel to greet her in this way. Now, what does the word favored mean? It's an interesting word because it comes from the root, the Greek word, the root is charis, charis. Um, and it's interesting because that word means grace. It, 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 it imbues the idea here that the angel is greeting uh, Mary in this statement of grace. Now, charis is the, is the Greek word for that. And those of you who are familiar with uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see there gifts that are spoken of as given by the Holy Spirit. And it's the same word that is the root of that. These are grace gifts that God gives. And for those of you who are familiar with church history, there has been in our, in our life, even here in the United States, the emergence of, of groups called charismatic Christians. Have you ever heard of that? It's not just that they are charismatic personalities. No, it's the idea that God has given these grace gifts. And here we see this word in the word favored. It is indeed a gift of grace. Hail you who are gifted by God's grace. And that grace is grace that affords joy and pleasure and delight. And it's not just Mary's uh, joy and pleasure and delight. It's God's joy, pleasure, and delight. Now, he also says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. 
The word Lord is, is uh, Kyrios, Kyrios in Greek. And it's curious to me that it means supreme authority or master. Now, when I hear the word master, it takes me to a different place, perhaps even a, a, a place in our history as a nation where a person owned another individual and they were called a slave. Well, in truth, that's what this word means. Lord means he to whom a person or a thing belongs. Hmm. Now, he not only says that, hail favored one, the Lord is with you, with you. Do you remember last week we were in Isaiah and we, uh, we, we uncovered in Isaiah chapter 7 this, this sign that was given to Ahaz, even though he didn't want a sign, right? Remember in chapter 7, we, we read that the sign is this, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And what in the world does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, right? Hail, favored one. Hail, favored one. The Lord, your master, is with you. Hmm. Let's look at verse 29. But Mary, she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, what kind of salutation is this? The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, it's the same word. It's this grace that speaks of joy and pleasure and delight. It's God's delight you have given him delight. John chapter 1, there the apostle writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the one and only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, This is he whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For he existed before me. For of his fullness, we have all received grace. We have received grace upon grace. It is indeed this favor that God extends even to us. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to be to adoption as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus himself, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This, this glorious grace is given even to us. It is this favor that the Lord imparts to us. Now, let's go on. Verse 31 in 
Luke chapter 1. And behold, the angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Last week, we talked about the name of Jesus, didn't we? Do you remember what the name of Jesus means? In, in Hebrew, his, his name is Yeshua. Yeshua sounds a lot like Joshua, right? Well, Joshua indeed is a similar name. Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. And his name shall be Yahweh is salvation. That's what the angel says to Mary. Hmm. Hebrews chapter 1. There the writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us, spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is his son, is the radiance of God Almighty's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of, of, uh, of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This is the name of Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. That is the name Jesus. Back in Luke chapter uh, one thirty-two, And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, the son of the most high. What does this mean, the, the, the most high? Well, it, obviously, it is a superlative, right? It is the most high. You can't get any higher than that. The word supreme is included in that. And we're not talking about a pizza from Barrows with everything on it. It is, it is the most extreme idea of what majesty is. It is the supremacy of God himself expressed here. He will be the son of the most high. Hmm. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. It's interesting that, that the angel says the Lord God. The Lord is indeed that word that we spoke of before. It is, it is the one to whom a person or things belong. He is, the, he is the one that owns. He has the power of deciding. He is master. He is Lord. And he is God. He is not only master, he is God. He is the supreme divinity. Hmm. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
Mary said to the angel, how, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This imagery of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and overshadowing her. That word overshadow means to um, not just to not just to uh, influence, but to intervene. And not just to intervene, to super intervene, to, to be all-encompassing. He will overshadow you. Let's go on in verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now, now she's in her sixth month of pregnancy. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing, nada, absolutely zilch will be impossible with God. That's the angel's message to Mary. Hmm. And what is Mary's response? Uh, I'm not sure what to make of this. This is a little scary, and I'm not sure I can do this, God. Uh... Listen, Gabe, I, this conversation here, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. No, what does she say? She says, behold, the bondservant of the Lord. It's not like Moses when God spoke to him and said, Mo, I have a job for you. And said, you're going to go in and free my people from slavery. What did Moses do? He said, not me. I'm not the guy. I can't do that, God. I can't do that. Because I, I can't speak eloquently. There's no way I can do that. Thankfully, the Lord provided a way out, even for Moses' doubt. But here we see Mary. Her response is, Complete submission. Behold the bondservant of the Lord. Now, now, what does this bondservant mean? Well, quite honestly, it means slave. In fact, in some of your translations, it may say bond slave. And indeed, that's precisely what it is. It's a, it's a person who submits themselves to a master. We've talked about master being the, the, the meaning of the word Lord, right? It is truly giving oneself to complete mastery of the Lord. Now, this slavery has the idea of subjection, 
It, it, is, it is being completely subject to the master. Now, sometimes a slave is completely subject to a master even though they don't want to be, right? That's part of our history, our, our, our history as a nation. And yet, yet here we see the word bond slave connected. That is the, the word that is given to a person who in that day would have uh, perhaps owed somebody a great sum, a sum that they could not pay off. They did not have the capability of, of paying off that debt. And so they would, they would give themselves to the, 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 the new owner as a bond slave. In other words, they would say to them, I will be your slave until my debt is paid. Mm. But the bond slave is one then who says, at the end of that payment period, once that debt has been paid off, they discover, wow, being the slave of this master is a pretty good thing. I don't need to worry about my, my, uh, my livelihood. I don't need to worry about taking care of things because he takes care of me. And so I am going to not only say, I'll be your slave till my debt is paid, but I'll be your slave for the rest of my life. That's a bond slave. And when, when that happened, the, the, uh, the owner, the master of that bond slave would say, okay, if that's your choice, you're going to be marked for life. And he would take that person to the, a doorway. And there on the doorpost, they would put his or her earlobe. And they would drive through the earlobe and all. I don't know about you, but that makes me cringe. They'd drive through an awl or a nail of sorts. And then they would put in a ring that would be there for the rest of that person's life because that declared the fact that they were owned by this master. And that is indeed what Mary is saying. Behold the bond slave. I'm, I am subservient to you for life. That's Mary's commitment to the Lord himself. Hmm. Now, not only does she say that, but she says, may it be done to me according to your word. According to your word. May it be done. That means may it, may it be fulfilled. May this thing that you have spoken actually happen. And not only just because, but according to your word. The word according has this idea of being joined with. According to your word. It's joined to your word. And by the way, your word, those of you who are familiar with this may understand, is the word rhema. It is the idea that this word is not just any word. It is spoken from a living being. And 
Not only that, it, it actually takes on a life of its own. When the word is spoken, in Hebrew thought, the word that is spoken goes actually becomes alive and it goes out to accomplish its purpose. Accomplish the thing that it says. That's a, that's a big deal. May it be done to me according to your word that goes out to accomplish what it is intended to do. The re, we read of this very idea in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, many of you know this verse very well. There the writer says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, this idea of the word is that it's not just it's just not ink on a page. It's living. It's active. And that's precisely what Mary understood. Let's look at verse 39. Now at this time, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. At this time means this time that the angel spoke to her and indeed that the Lord had done his miraculous, marvelous, unspeakable work in her life. She arose and went in a hurry to the hill country. Why do you think she's in a hurry? Think about it. She's pregnant. She's pregnant and she's not married. What do you think she's doing? Maybe she's running away for fear. Maybe she's running to Elizabeth because she has heard what God has done with Elizabeth too. You see, she is her relative. Elizabeth is her cousin. Let's go on. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened? How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Wow. Leaped in my womb for joy. The word joy here means exultation. And it's not just any thought here. It's, it's, it's extreme joy. It's the type of joy that you see in a, in a child who just can't wait. It's this. Oh, that's joy. That's the, the joy that we see even in this child. And I don't know, I think Elizabeth might have been, what is going on here? The child in her leaped for joy. I'd like for you to take note that 
in Luke's gospel, we find the verb rejoice more in his gospel more than any other place in the New Testament. And associated with this verb rejoice is joy itself. Here we see the joy in Elizabeth's baby upon Mary's greeting. Later, we're going to see joy in Mary's response. And there is joy in the angels greeting the shepherds on that beautiful night of Jesus' birth. And there's even joy in their chatter with one another as they go to see the baby. And later on in Luke, there is joy on earth in the finding of a lost sheep and a lost coin. And there is joy in heaven over sinners who are found. In Luke 15, this is what Jesus says. He told them this parable saying, what, a man, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which is lost. And Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There'll be joy in heaven. He goes right on and says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy. Joy is not only for us, but it's for all of heaven. Verse 45, back in Luke chapter 1. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God had spoken to her by the Lord. Blessed is she. Blessed is that idea of being supremely happy. And and not only that, but, but profoundly fortunate. It's not just a moment. It is, it is this, this experience of being completely cared for, being completely in the Lord's care. Blessed is she who believed. This word believed means, of course, faith, but it's faith that's in respect to an individual, a, a person, And it speaks of trusting that person and trusting them so much that they are willing to commit to that person. Believed in the fulfillment of what God has spoken. This word fulfillment, it it means the completion of, 
the completion of what has been spoken by the Lord. And not only, not only the completion of it, but the stamp that says it's done. It's verification that it's done. That's what fulfillment involves. Note that joy, there is joy here, but it's in the waiting. It's the, in the anticipation. Dare I say, it's even in the perseverance and the pursuit of, of, of God's intentions. It's not just the moment. Joy isn't just the moment of the unwrapping or of the, of the completion. It's even in the anticipation and perhaps especially in the anticipation of that fulfillment. Many of you know C.S. Lewis, right? Uh, he is a, he's a great author. Uh, he, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have seen the movie, right? And, and not only is he an author, but he's a theologian. And in his stories, he unpacks very often for us unspeakable truths of who God is. He writes in this, in, in, in a book entitled Surprised by Joy that, that chronicles his coming to faith. He writes, there is a common thread of joy and it is that of an unsatisfied desire. An unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. You see, he speaks of, of it is, it's the anticipation. That's where the joy is. That's where the, oh, I can't wait kind of thing comes from. That anticipation. He says, joy has indeed one characteristic with happiness and pleasure. It's, it's, it's distinct from happiness and pleasure. But the one thing that it has in common is the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Joy. It's repeatable. It's desire over and over and over. It's the, the joy is found in the anticipation and it's wrapped up in faith and hope not in the actual acquiring of the promise. That is the truth that we see in Elizabeth's exclamation. Blessed, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment. It's out there. It's future focused. The fulfillment of what God has spoken. And Look at the next passage, beginning in verse 46. The fulfillment of this joy, the anticipation of that fulfillment spills over and it just erupts out of Mary who, who gives this, this wonderful um, exclamation of God's grace. And it's, it's interesting that here, this passage, we, we call it the Magnificat. It's, it's, it's a distinct passage in Scripture, but it parallels very much 
the, the, the exclamation of Hannah. Who in the world is Hannah? She is the mother of the prophet Samuel. And the prophet Samuel is the one who anointed King David. And she was barren, not able to have children. She cried out to the Lord on the, on the steps of the temple, and, and the Lord answered her. And in her, in her devotion to the Lord, she brought young Samuel, this child, to the temple and, and dedicated him for service there in the temple. And her response, her response to what the Lord has given her is echoed in Mary's uh, words. It's interesting to me that if, if you did a parallel study, there's, there's numerous connections. To me, that says that Mary had the word of God hidden in her heart. And it became part of her. And it just poured forth. Let's read together. And Mary said, verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their throne and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich empty-handed away. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Take a look at verse 46. There at the beginning of this Magnificat, Mary speaks in the past tense in the second sentence there. And he, she is so certain of the future fulfillment of the angel's proclamation. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. This word exalt, um, <laughs> in, 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 in Greek, it, it is megalino. Do you hear a word that's familiar to us there? Mega? What does it mean? It means huge, right? It means so big. And yet it also means to magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. What does that mean? Does it mean that, that Mary's soul is making God bigger? No. Think about the word magnify. God can't be made any bigger, right? He is, he is all in all. But the word magnify carries with it what we see is in greater detail. We put things under a microscope and we magnify them. They don't get bigger, but we see the detail within them. That's a glorious picture of what this exaltation is. It's, it's God, I see you in greater and greater detail. Even here. 
And my spirit, in the past perfect tense, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Uh, going back just a little bit, what, what did Gabriel say the name of this child was supposed to be? Jesus, right? Yeshua. And what does Yeshua mean? It means Yahweh is my salvation. Yahweh is salvation. My, my, she says, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Her praise spills out and it's directed to God Almighty, but it's also directed to her son, who is God Almighty. Mary's praise spills out. It's the spilling out of joy. And it's, it's her anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise. And yet I, I have to wonder, do you think, do you think she had any idea of what was to come? On the one hand, I think perhaps, no, this, she had no idea what was coming. But what is her response to Gabriel? Behold the bond slave of the Lord. You see, it didn't matter what was to come. Because she was completely submitted to the Lord unconditionally. And as a result... She trusts his promise absolutely. Her joy is not diminished by her circumstance. Think about it. Here again, Mary was pregnant and she wasn't married. Her joy isn't diminished by her difficult circumstance. Rather, <laughs> it is the it is rooted in what she sees as God's great fulfillment. Surely she would endure much grief. She would experience grief unimaginable in the full fulfillment of God's promise. By this time, I think she had probably heard Joseph's story his encounter with the angel. Remember, she was pregnant out of wedlock. And Joseph had decided, he, he heard this. He had decided, well, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put her away quietly. I'm not gonna bring any disgrace on her, but I can't marry this woman. And what happens? In Matthew, we read that an angel visited Joseph in a dream. And there the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, 
Yahweh is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Joseph and Mary are Jewish. Duh, right? But what does that mean to a Jewish person? For God, for he will save his people from their sins. As a Jew, how are your sins forgiven? The day of atonement, once a year. Thousands of lamb are led into, into Jerusalem and they are sacrificed, their blood poured out to atone for their sin. You see, the idea here is it's a life for a life. There's foreshadowing going on here. The Lord himself is saying salvation is coming even through this child. Mary's joy and in the, in the anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise will not be diminished. It will not be diminished by her grief of what is coming. No, because she is rejoicing in God, her Savior. So I have to ask, all this talk of joy being present in Mary's life, in the announcement of God's intention, the fulfillment of his plan, how does that impact us? When it comes to joy, finding joy is not just some mental gymnastic that we do um, and by by redefining our situations. No, joy is joy is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering. All of that is part of God's work in our lives. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Joy is the, joy is the evidence of his work in our lives. So you have to ask, if I'm not experiencing joy, what's going on? More than likely, if I'm not experiencing joy, the anticipation of God's fulfillment of his plan, if I'm not experiencing that personally as a Christian, chances are I'm not giving the Holy Spirit liberty in my life to do what he desires to do. Hmm. What, is, what does Jesus say the Holy Spirit will do? He's sending him as a comforter, right? but he also convicts of sin, does he not? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if joy is not present in our lives, there is likely something that we are saying, God, I'm not ready to give that to you. I'm not ready to submit that to you. 
Hmm. Stuart Briscoe was a pastor in the upper Midwest. Um, some of you may, may recognize that name. He uh, was a, a pastor who came from England uh, decades ago, and he, he assumed being a pastor in a small church in uh, Wisconsin. And um, there, God did a marvelous thing, and it was very similar to what God did through Chuck Smith in California, in that he stirred up his work there in that upper Midwest community, and, and the church grew from a tiny little suffering group of people into a large ministry that multiplied over and over and over again. And Stuart Briscoe then became an author, and he writes this. Some of us only like to invite guests into our home when we have everything clean and in its place. We've mopped the kitchen floor, we've taken out the trash, vacuumed the carpets, washed the windows, dusted the lampshades and bookshelves, stocked the refrigerator, even brought fresh cut flowers and given the kids a bath. He says, of course, it's tempting to think of the Holy Spirit in a similar way, as though he only likes to show up when everything in our lives is as it should be. But the experience of countless Christians points in a different direction. In fact, many seasoned believers will tell you that they've, they never experienced greater or sweeter supplies of God's Spirit than when they're in the midst of suffering. I have a feeling that's true in a lot of our lives here. It was true in the life of the Apostle Paul. He he struggled with what he called a thorn in the flesh. And he cried out to the Lord to take it away, but he records that the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, he writes, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and insults, distresses and persecution and difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God has this habit of turning that which would be considered useless things that we only want to get rid of into opportunities for his spirit to rush in and provide new life. I don't know where you're at this morning, but my sense is that even now today, he desires to rush in and provide for us the assurance of the fulfillment of his purpose, even in our lives. That we would erupt with joy and be able to say with Mary, my soul exalts the Lord. 
and I'm sure of his fulfillment, of his purposes. Joy is part of our life as believers. The writer of Hebrews reminds us to keep our eyes on the prize. He writes there in Hebrews 12, the beginning of that chapter, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, the cross is the fulfillment of God's purpose in Jesus' life. He came not just to be a good teacher. He came to be the sacrifice for our sin. The fulfillment of God's purpose is bringing redemption to all of creation. To put in order those things that have flung out of order. To bring back, to buy back those who have said they have been enslaved by sin. Who for the joy set before him. You see, some, I've heard it preached. What is the joy set before him? I've heard it preached sometimes that, well, that joy is you and I. Because we're the apple of his eye, right? It's so much more than that. The joy set before him was the fulfillment of his purpose the redemption of all humanity, the return of fellowship with God for anyone who will believe. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. It's hard sometimes to put the word celebrate in the context of communion because communion is the remembering through the elements of the bread and the cup to of the death of Christ. How do you celebrate that? How is there joy found in that? There is joy in the fact that it is the fulfillment of God's purpose that we remember in these elements. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward, if they would, to begin to distribute the elements. And as they do, I'd like to read from Hebrews chapter 10. There the writer says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled 
clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Faithful to fulfill his promise. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning for the glorious truth that your faithfulness is not, it's not limited to time and space because it is the fulfillment, the continuing fulfillment of your purposes in our lives. And even as we take these elements this morning, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your purpose truly is to take away our sin, to redeem us, to buy us back, and indeed fill us with your life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.